0: We're continuing our series in Leviticus, but without being in Leviticus this morning. So the series is to live in the presence of God. And um, just to kind of give you a quick review of what we have seen here in recent history as we've talked about this, we've seen the story of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. And these were priests who came into the tabernacle against God's instructions. They brought strange fire. They disobeyed God. And because of that, God struck them dead. He consumed them with fire. And so that presents a problem. The problem is that the tabernacle has been defiled by sin and dead bodies. And so what are we going to do about that? And the answer to the problem of Leviticus 10 comes in Leviticus 16 with the Day of Atonement. So two weeks ago, we talked about the Day of Atonement ritual itself. We talked about the two goats and the one who carries the sins of Israel out into the wilderness, the other one who is sacrificed and the blood is taken in and cleanses the tabernacle and atones for the sins of the people. And so that's the ritual and that's pointing us forward to Jesus and his sacrifice of atonement on our behalf, his substitution in our place. We defined atonement as to appease the wrath of an offended party by a gift that rectifies an injustice done in order to restore a broken relationship. And so then we talked about Jesus' atonement for us and how Jesus is the one who brings us, because of his atonement, peace with God and then access to God. He intercedes for us and he's a sympathetic high priest who knows our weaknesses and still loves us. Today, what I would like to do is I want to talk um, for a little bit about something I'm just going to call false atonement. I want to talk about the ways in which our culture today seeks atonement in the wrong ways. And hopefully this will help us to see some of our current cultural issues maybe in a different light, understanding some of what's going on underneath the surface, even subconsciously, Because we, uh, as Christians, we have God's word that tells us how he's made us. And so we know things about how humans think and work and operate and the world that God has designed. And so what I'd like to do is just kind of apply what we've seen in scripture to what's going on in our culture and see some ways that our culture is looking for atonement but doing it in the wrong ways. Let me give you just some kind of rambling thoughts before I jump into four Ways that we look for atonement in the wrong ways. Four versions of false atonement. So, as you read scripture, Romans 1 is kind of a key passage for understanding culture apart from the gospel. When Paul's writing Romans, he's going to talk about the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to all those who believe. But then he immediately kind of takes a step back from that in chapter 1 and he starts talking about man apart from the gospel. And there's a general revelation from creation. We talked about that as we looked at the catechism question this morning. And that applies to all people. Paul says everybody, every single person on earth, can know some things about God just from the world around us. In fact, he says, we can know enough to know that God made us, that we're accountable to him, that we're guilty before him. But we don't know enough to provide us with salvation. For salvation, we need special revelation. We need the word of God that tells us what Jesus did. That's special revelation. So we have knowledge of sin, and we have knowledge of guilt, but not of what to do with that guilt. Secular man, Today's average person who's not religious is actually religious. Secular man actually is religious. We are all worshipers, the Bible tells us. And so we're all religious. And all of us, since we all sense sin and guilt, we all seek atonement in some way. Now we'll see as we go on that our culture is actually very confused on a couple of fronts. We're confused about what sin is to begin with, and we're confused what to do with our guilt. But think about what culture is. Means of atonement are expressed in culture. Culture is the religion or the worship of a people externalized. Culture is the worship of a people externalized. Think of how culture is related to the word cult. It's talking about <clears throat> what we believe as a people, kind of our, 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 our group understanding and presuppositions and beliefs and how those things play out in the shared spaces that we have. So our culture approaches law and government and education and entertainment and recreation and all of these different things in certain ways because of what we believe. And and culture reveals what we value. So culture is the worship of a people externalized, put out there for everybody to see. It's our, our shared beliefs in a manner of speaking. So that means that the ways that our culture seeks atonement will tell us something of what we worship. And we'll see, of course, our, our, our means of atonement as a culture are ultimately unsuccessful. It's only the atonement of Jesus that can ever truly wash away guilt for sin. The other idea that I just kind of, kind of want to throw out there for us to have in the back of our mind as we look at these false atonements this morning is the myth of neutrality. We tend to think of culture as neutral. We tend to think, well, we have an American culture and other countries have these different cultures and we think that cultures are just they're neutral, they're, they're not a good or bad thing, but that's not the case at all. Because when it comes to law, there's a standard and the standard is God's word. When it comes to government, there is a standard and the standard is God's word. When it comes to every area of culture, there is a standard and the standard is God's word. And that means that some cultures will be better than others depending on how much they reflect God's word. Culture's not neutral. So culture's going to tell us something about what we really believe and about what we worship. There is no neutrality. Everything's an expression of worldview. Now, I'm going to give you a quote here in a minute. And this is the only kind of academic, got to think about it type quote this morning. All right, so just bear with me for a few slides. This is a, a professor named William Edgar, and he's talking about the French Revolution. But here's what he has to say. He says, When classic justification, based on the propitiatory work of Christ, is absent... Human beings will grasp for substitutes, often grotesque ones. Okay, let's just pause for a minute. Justification is how we are declared righteous. And propitiation is turning aside God's wrath. So what he's talking about when he says classic justification based on the propitiatory work of Christ, he's talking about atonement. Okay? He says when that's missing, when that's absent, human beings will look for substitutes often grotesque ones. We have here in the French Revolution, among much else, a case of secular atonement. So he's identifying something that happens during the French Revolution as being an expression of people's desire for atonement, although it's a secular version of it. What's he talking about? He says, one of the central rituals within the drama of the French Revolution was meant to achieve expiation. Expiation and propitiation are kind of like two sides of the same coin. Expiation just means cleansing. So it's the guilt and, and the wrath that comes because of it. Propitiation is turning aside God's wrath. Expiation is cleansing from guilt. Okay, So <clears throat> one of the central rituals of the French Revolution, he's saying, was meant to achieve expiation, cleansing from guilt. It was important to be cleansed from the past while at the same time holding up revolutionary ideals. So those who are carrying out the French Revolution, they've got their revolutionary ideals, but they're looking at, they want to wipe away the past. They look at, at, at what has come before as wrong. It's, it, it needs to be washed away. We as a people need to, to wash that out of our past and move forward in this direction. There's a lot of that going on in our culture today, right now. Okay? What is it specifically that he's talking about? He says, thus the guillotine was a counterfeit for Calvary. As the individuals who represent the, the old order, the old regime, are brought to the guillotine and their heads are chopped off and their blood flows, that is atonement. It's a secular version of it. It's washing away the guilt of the past so that we can move forward. All right. So much for the, for the difficult, like, brain-bending quotes this morning. All right. First secular atonement today that I want to talk about, first version of false atonement, is racial reparations. False atonement for racism and hate. Our culture's problem, in this sense, today, we, we, we look at it and we say, well, there's real racism and prejudice and oppression and discrimination in our history. So in distant history, there was slavery. And in more recent history, there was discrimination. And we look at the civil rights era. And currently, there's a lot of talk about racism and prejudice, though it may not be as widespread as previously or as dramatic as previously, although I should say, People say that it's incredibly widespread because everybody's a racist today. But I want to point this out. It's the Christian worldview that has moved our society toward an understanding that all men are created equal. Now, not perfectly. And lots of Christians have done this, have have lived out culture in ways that denied that truth. Christians have not been perfect in their record on race. But it is the Christian worldview that has moved us toward a biblical understanding of equality. Now, due to the social justice movement, racism has become an excuse for seeing yourself as a victim. So we talk about white fragility and whiteness and intersectionality and privilege and all of that. And our culture's solution is to tear down privilege, particularly white privilege. You've got to become anti-racist. It's not enough to not be a racist. You have to actively be anti-racist. So in concrete terms, what does that look like? Well, financial reparations is a big part of what's being proposed here. Joe Biden supports conducting a study to make a recommendation on reparations and says that immediate action should be taken on institutional racism. Kamala Harris is on record as supporting reparations. This kind of issue, this kind of thinking, is very prevalent and has spread very quickly. There's someone... um, who is currently up for uh, examination for for Biden's cabinet. Her name is Vanita Gupta, and she is um, up for a position in the Justice Department. And uh, she has written in the past that we all have implicit bias and racial bias. And so one of the senators questioning her said, okay, so you've written that we all have implicit bias and racial bias. Which ethnic groups do you personally harbor racial bias against? And she hemmed and hawed and kind of talked around it. And see, the issue is she was not willing to say that she herself was guilty of a particular sin. This is just kind of a, an amorphous, out there cultural sin that we're all guilty of. <clears throat> there's a pastor, and I use the term loosely, this week, who um, said something that kind of got talked about a good bit. His name is Brandon Robertson, and he's a very liberal pastor, but a, a fairly well-known one with a large platform. And he talked about how in the Gospels, when Jesus um, talks about the, the, the food not being given to dogs in response to this particular woman, that Jesus used a racial slur, that the woman spoke truth to power by calling him out on it, and that Jesus repented of his racism. We've gone pretty far in attributing racism to everyone when we're saying that Jesus is racist. And it's not, <clears throat> it's not just at, the, at one end of the spectrum. You can go on the Gospel Coalition website and find an article, Thabidi Anyabwili, on how reparations are biblical, in which he takes one biblical example and stretches it beyond the breaking point, ignores the direct teaching of scripture, and confuses reparations for restitution. What would reparations accomplish? Well, This secular atonement would be a gift to rectify a perceived injustice done. The problem is, it's very generationally misguided. What does God's word say? Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 18. I'm going to have you turn to a couple different places this morning. And I'm going to keep moving pretty quickly. Just in order to, to cover what we need to cover, I can't go super deep into each one of these. But Ezekiel chapter 18, go to the middle of your Bible and turn right. Go past a couple of big books, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and then one small one, Lamentations, and then you'll find Ezekiel, and Ezekiel chapter 18. A while ago, we talked about this passage in more detail. I'm just going to have us look at a couple things from it briefly this morning. Ezekiel chapter 18, look with me at verses 19 and 20. Yet you say, why should not the Son suffer for the iniquity of the Father? When the Son has done what is just and right, and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The Son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the Father, nor the Father suffer for the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself." God says he's going to hold the individuals accountable for their own sin. God does not punish others for someone's sin. Specifically here, it's generational. He's not going to punish the sons for the sins of the father. Now, that's not to say that there aren't generational consequences. But in terms of moral guilt... Jesus does not hold, or excuse me, God does not hold subsequent generations guilty for the sins of the fathers. There may be consequences, there may be downstream effects, but God does not hold them guilty of that sin. Look down at verse 29, actually uh, 25 through 29, let's read that paragraph. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. There's a lot of claims of injustice today. Here now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life because he's considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed. He shall surely live, he shall not die. That's what we call repentance. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? So the solution is that those who have sinned repent and turn from their sin. But our culture and the influence of critical race theory, basically, doesn't allow for the possibility of turning from sin. Because we're all racist and we all always will be. You're racist by definition. You can't get away from it. So there's never any actual solution to the guilt and part of that is simply because we've misunderstood sin and guilt so there's this imagined generational sin and therefore a false and ineffective atonement let me give you another one economic justice false atonement for the greed and inequality of capitalism our culture has a problem So we look at free market capitalism, and that has supposedly led to greed and inequality. And some people have a lot, and some people have a little. And some who are wealthy seem to make decisions to benefit themselves. And it harms others. And the the assumption is that we would all be better off if we all had the same amount. And so the culture's solution is, largely through legislative means, to even everything out, to take away from those who have more and give to those who have less. So we raise the minimum wage, right? The recent attempt was to raise it up to $15 an hour. Or there's things proposed like a universal basic income. We seek to raise taxes on the wealthy. All of these are statist solutions. They're government solutions. They're not actually dealing with the heart, Or we listen to global organizations like the World Economic Forum that says the solution is to do away with private property. Everything needs to be community owned. And then we'll do away with all of this greed and inequality. You won't have private property and you'll be happy. What does God's word say? Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. So this is towards the back of your Bible. This is a letter that Paul wrote to his... Uh, protege Timothy, <clears throat> he's giving him some instructions. Look with me at First Timothy chapter six and verse ten. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Notice what it does not say. It does not say money is a root of all kinds of evil. It says the love of money a disordered love. That's the problem. Now, I'm going to share with you a couple other verses from other places, but hold your place there because I want to come back to First Timothy 6 in just a minute. These others, I'll just read for you. Uh, in Colossians chapter 2, like why do you submit to regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch talking about physical things of the earth so so we think that spirituality is going to come from abstaining from certain physical things like for instance money, wealth and Paul says there these, these rules, these regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom sounds good but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They, they have this appearance because it's promoting a self-made religion. It sounds good. Oh, yeah, we're all, we'll all be equal. But that doesn't actually deal with the real problem. If there's a heart problem of greed, then that needs to be dealt with in the heart. And dealing with the externals and forcing uh, people to get rid of wealth or, or redistributing wealth is never going to be the solution that actually deals with the heart. God's design, according to scripture, includes private property. That's why Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 15, part of the 10 commandments says, you shall not steal. That's why, and, and this is one of those things that, that, that uh, liberal Christians turn completely upside down. There's the the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, all of the different property that had changed hands in Israel, all the different land, I shouldn't say property, land, is returned to its original owner. And so people say, well, see, everything's supposed to be equal. No, that's not the point. The point is, God gave private property, and he doesn't want people to be without it. So if, if you had a business deal that went south, if you had trouble with your crops, if you had whatever it was over the course of time that you lost that property, God is restoring that to you because everybody was to have private property to use and to steward for his glory. Private property is part of God's design. God's design forbids economic manipulation. Leviticus 19, you shall do no wrong in judgment in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah and a just hin. That means you're supposed to be fair and equal and, uh, and righteous in all of, your, all of your economic dealings with others. Same chapter, verse 15, you shall do no injustice in court, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. God's standard is the standard for all. The courts are not to twist things in order to help the poor or twist things in order to penalize the wealthy. It's to be just. You're in 1 Timothy 6, so look with me now at verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So if you're wealthy, Don't trust in your wealth. Trust in God. Verse 18, They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. God's design is for voluntary generosity, not state-sanctioned redistribution. God doesn't say their wealth should be taken from them and given to others. So our culture's desire to force the wealthy to atone for what they've gained and that inequality is really a promotion of injustice and theft by the state. It's a very false means of atonement. Because again, we've confused what actually sin is. A third one, gender equality, false atonement for the sins of patriarchy and headship. Our culture has rejected God's design. There's a hatred for patriarchy, a hatred for God-designed gender identity. And what you're currently seeing in the physical realm in our world Rejecting gender differences is the fruit of the same rejection in the relational realm. God says that husbands are to be heads in the household. Our culture doesn't like that. Our culture rejects that. And many in the church reject that. And now what you're seeing is the fruit of that rejection playing itself out, even in the physical realm, where we want to get rid of all distinctions Whatsoever. It's a rejection of God's standards. And it's not just in the culture, it's in the church as well. So the culture's solution here, the way the culture wants to find atonement is, remove all restraints and remove all distinctions. So we have the Equality Act, which is before Congress, which would remove all those distinctions in the eyes of the law. It would be mandated approval of gender dysphoria, It's a rejection of God's will. This, uh, maybe, I'm not sure exactly when it happened. Within the last week or two, there was a a representative from Florida who stood up in the U.S. house. His name is uh, Greg Stubbe. And he gave a great short speech calling the Equality Act what it is and saying what it's really doing. And he said, our culture is rejecting God's will. And when a nation rejects God's will, that nation is under God's judgment, and that's what we're seeing in our nation today. We are under the judgment of God. He made a clear statement. But what was most striking to me was not his statement, but the response that came immediately after from Jerry Nadler, who's the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, who said, Mr. Stubbe, what any religious tradition or the Bible prescribes as God's will is of no concern to this Congress. Is there any question why we are under the judgment of God? What does God say? God's design for men and women is good. Jesus says, Matthew 19 and 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? This is God's good design. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I mentioned this earlier this morning, but I want you to see this. Romans chapter 1. And we're going to get a picture of what happens when men reject their creator and his standards. Romans chapter 1. Follow along with me. Verse 18. And I'm going to skip around to a couple different verses here. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That is what our culture is doing right now. We've rejected God. We've embraced unrighteousness. And we are suppressing the truth. The truth is obvious. For centuries, for thousands of years, we've known that there are men and women and that they are not the same. And our culture is playing the fool and suppressing the truth. It's utter ridiculousness. There's going to come a day in the future where people will look back on our nation during this time and laugh and scorn what we are doing now more than anything that has happened in human history before now. It is just absolute nonsense. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Notice the progression there. They knew God, but they didn't honor him. They didn't worship him. They didn't obey him. And in doing that, what's the result? Dark minds, dark hearts, and they became fools. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Notice what happens. God's judgment is that he removes his restraining hand. He lets them go where they want to go. Our culture is doing that. Our culture is pursuing sin and rebellion headlong, and God is removing his restraining hand, and so people are running full tilt into this sin and rebellion. Verse 25, "...because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever." We've exchanged the truth for a lie. We've embraced things that are simply false. And we're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. We're denying the creator. We don't want to hear from him. We don't want to listen to his laws. We're going to worship ourselves and what we want. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. When you hear those who claim to be Christians making room for the LGBTQ worldview, inside the church, they are false teachers. There is no place for rebellion against God in the worldview of the Christian. It is not to be. This is the judgment of God. He gives them up to these dishonorable passions. Look at verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And our culture has even moved beyond that. We don't just give approval, we're now mandating approval. You're not allowed to not give approval. This is an attempt to force our society to atone for false sins by rejecting God's standard and just allowing anything. Last one. Environmentalism. False atonement for the sins of stewardship and dominion. Our culture looks around and we see damage done to the environment. By the way, hold your place there in Romans 1. We see the damage done to the environment, we see climate change, we worry about the future of the planet, we see the pollution of non-biodegradable waste, plastic, nuclear, oil, etc. We look around and we see, well, there's overpopulation, the planet is being damaged. And so the solution is environmental regulations and clean energy, which isn't, and things like the Green New Deal. And so you hear Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum saying, yes, we're happy to help with the economic recovery, but there will be strings attached. It needs to be a green New Deal because our planet is in peril. I found an interesting expression of this in an article that was introducing the 2020 Mercedes-Benz EQC. Just listen to the first couple of sentences from this article introducing this new vehicle. The days when Tesla occupied the premium electric segment all on its own are well and truly over. Jaguar has the I-Pace, Audi the e-tron, and now Mercedes-Benz is launching the EQC, a premium battery electric SUV. Now listen. The car was presented in Norway, an oil-rich country that can afford generous subsidies for electric cars think of it as secular atonement. I'm reading from the article introducing the vehicle. They are outright saying, first of all, Norway needs to atone for their sin of being an oil-rich country. And so part of their atonement is to host the introduction of the new Mercedes battery-powered vehicle. And Mercedes and all these other car makers need to atone for the sins of the damage they've done to the environment through gas-powered vehicles. And so Mercedes can atone for their sin by creating an electric-powered vehicle. What does God's word say? Creation is not ultimate. God is. We've talked before about the idea of a one-ist or two-ist view of the world. Most worldviews are one-ist, whether that's Darwinism or an Eastern religion or whatever it is. The biblical worldview is two-ist, meaning there is the Creator and the creation, and they are not the same. The Creator is eternal. The creation was made. The creator is worthy of worship. The creation is to worship him. Romans 1, verse 25. If you're still there, look at it. Romans 1, verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Or we could say the creation rather than the creator. That's what our culture is doing. It's worshiping the creation, elevating it to divine status. But if God is the creator, then the creation belongs to him. And he is the one who determines what should happen to the creation. It's his. He defines it. He gets to say what we should and should not do with the creation. And so creation is to be stewarded. That's creation care, not creation abuse. And we are to have dominion, which is creation use, not creation worship. So he says, have dominion, subdue. We're to use it. We're not to abuse it, but we're to use the creation. The creation is not ultimate, God is ultimate. The creation is a tool for us to use to God's glory. But our world seeks a false atonement by sacrificing our gain and comfort and dominion in order to preserve the planet. And so that's a false atonement offered to the wrong God. What's going on in all of these cases of false atonement? Well, it's the rejection of God's standards. It's a rejection of his law. Our culture no longer knows what sin is. Just like we don't know what a human is, or what a woman is, or what a marriage is, we don't know what sin is. And so we call things sin that are not sin. And we fail to call things sin when they are sin. Because we've rejected the creator And his standard, his law. So, our culture has guilt because we're created by God and we live in this world that he's made, and that's the way the world works. And so, we know we have guilt, but we've misplaced the guilt because we don't understand sin. And so, we no longer recognize the solution for sin. We know guilt, but we don't know what to do with it. We seek atonement in the wrong ways. Biblical atonement is for biblical sin. Sin as God defines it. An offense against the majesty and glory of God and his law. And biblical atonement is only achieved through the sacrifice of Jesus' blood. Only Jesus is a gift equal in worth to the offense we've committed. And only Jesus offers a sacrifice that's actually holy and blameless and sinless. Leviticus 16 has explained for us the ritual of the Day of Atonement. And we've seen how that ritual is fulfilled ultimately in the atonement that's offered by Jesus through his death on the cross. That's the only atonement that the Bible proclaims. It's the only atonement that God accepts. Our world is full of people seeking atonement in the wrong ways much of what we see in our world as political correctness or virtue signaling that's our culture's attempts to find atonement in many in many ways <clears throat> those means of atonement will never be successful it's our task to point them to true atonement when you see your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors trying to deal with guilt in these ways point them to Christ For each of us, when we're dealing with our own personal guilt, the atonement of Christ is a hope-filled, solid answer. Because of Christ, we have peace with God. We have access to God. We have an intercessor. We have a substitute, a sympathetic high priest who, who knows our weaknesses and loves us. If you find yourself dealing with guilt in the wrong ways, repent of your own ideas. Turn to Christ who stands ready to forgive. Trust him for the atonement that he's made on your behalf. It would be appropriate for each of us to examine our own minds and hearts. What do you do with your guilt? What are your motives? Do you find yourself at times thinking like the world in these areas? Do you find yourself going along with what the world says in these areas? Let's be people who are committed to the lordship of Christ and the law of God. Let's take him at his word and turn to him for atonement. Let's not seek to be guiltless in the eyes of the world, but rather, let's say with Paul, we make it our aim to please you pray with me. Lord, our culture is in a mess. We are facing your judgment because we have turned away from you. We've turned away from your standard. We don't even know what sin is anymore. And yet we have guilt. I pray that you would enable us to speak truth into this culture, that you would enable us to be faithful to your word that we would not drift away into thinking like the world, but that our minds and hearts would be shaped by your spirit through your word. Thank you for the atonement that we find in Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.